You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner, his last public lectures, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum. Eleven lectures, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 8, entitled Human Development and Education in the Light of Anthroposophy, given in Prague on the 30th of April, 1923. The words, Know Yourself, resound to us from ancient Greece as a deep spiritual admonition. This phrase can be related more to a general understanding of the human being, of human nature, than to personal self-knowledge, and as such it can be described as the culmination of all human knowledge and striving. From the way in which this phrase resonates in us, we can also feel that it is not meant as a merely academic or theoretical exhortation, but is intended rather as a spiritual admonition in a moral and religious sense. And it seems that at the end of an era in human evolution of much breadth and scope, a kind of answer and response now stands before the human soul. This response was expressed almost fifty years ago, and in fact has already been forgotten, really. In a sense has faded from human awareness. Nevertheless, the whole of our modern condition of soul, the great conflict we carry within us, is influenced by this latter-day answer, which was expressed by Dubois Raymond. He stated that we cannot know, or as he put it, ignoramus ignoramus, though many today think that this profession of unknowing has been superseded, the very way we relate as human beings to the world in our inquiries or our faith, is founded on this underlying idea. We can say, in fact, that this is the faith, either expressed or remaining unexpressed, in the findings of scientific research and their significance for our overall world outlook and view of life. Now, anyone who has participated in cultural life for the past few decades and has recognized how it has evolved over the previous three to four centuries, will not gainsay the view of knowledge propounded by science. In its investigations of the outward world of the senses, its achievements are magnificent. These great achievements include the use of instruments, of experimental methods for investigating the sensory world and its laws, and its success in confirming and substantiating its findings through manifold, empirical, technical, and practical applications, without which our modern life would now be inconceivable. This science starts from the premise of gaining knowledge of the world that is as independent as possible of the wishes, preconceptions, and feelings we can bring to bear on our perception of things and phenomena. Science has achieved its successes specifically by excluding anything personal in its investigations. But someone who honestly upholds these scientific principles, 
who can see how beneficial science has been for our knowledge of the natural world around us, will inevitably also say, in relation to the application of these methods, that they have their limit, that science, as it has so far developed, cannot extend into regions in which the human soul and spirit hold sway. And this is not because of any deficiency, but precisely because of science's virtues. If we survey what has been achieved in various scientific fields, we will recognize that this science, of course, seeks to turn its attention back upon the human being once more. It seeks to apply its methods to human nature, and yet it cannot investigate more than our outward bodily physical being. We see this most clearly when the scientific method is applied in the form of experimental psychology, proceeding by the use of what is a truly magnificent research approach to examine mental and emotional phenomena within the human constitution. But at the same time, it becomes apparent that none of these investigations lead us to what we can call the eternal nature of the human being, that aspect of human nature whose true reality people have a deep longing to recognize, harboring a hope that this reality is something that passes beyond the limits of earthly life, beyond birth and death. I definitely do not wish to object to empirical methods such as those used in experimental psychology. The mode of research that underpins what I say to you this evening acknowledges the full validity of these methods. But it is because we recognize their limits too that we must state unequivocally that they cannot extend to the real nature of soul and spirit. In fact, some clear-sighted investigators have seen the necessity themselves of recognizing that science cannot extend to the intrinsic nature of matter itself on the one hand and to the nature of human consciousness on the other. But if we cannot study how our consciousness, that is, the soul properties active within us, encompass matter, then we are compelled to relinquish that great call for us to know ourselves. In this case, the epoch of human cultural evolution, since the ancient Greek era, would end with us acknowledging that know yourself, albeit a fine and powerful exhortation, is ultimately an illusion. We would have to say that this exhortation must remain unfulfilled. The more deeply we engage with the spirit of scientific research, the more we must, from an anthroposophic perspective, give credence to those who affirm the ignorabimus, who state that ultimately we cannot know, who speak of the limits to science beyond which we cannot reach. And yet we must still ask whether the human mind can accept such limits willingly, turning aside without more ado from wishes intrinsic to the human heart? An answer to this question can be found in the anthroposophic research I will try to describe this evening. Its inquiries examine the justification of these inner demands and promptings. Many people today who recognize the great achievements of science nevertheless feel that it cannot approach the realm of soul and spirit. Many, therefore, who do not wish to accept limits to human knowledge turn instead to one or another form of mysticism, 
to modes of mystic vision that try to fathom through inner contemplation eternal dimensions of the human being. Through such mystic contemplation, many fine and beautiful insights have been drawn forth from the depths of the human soul, from the depths of the life in us that otherwise remains subconscious or unconscious. Through such mystic contemplation, many have come to believe that what they draw up in this way from the depths of the soul, what they find within themselves, is rooted directly in divine spiritual existence. By drawing it forth, they think they will bring the divine spirit within the purlieu of human knowledge, making it manifest and thus penetrate to apprehension of the eternal nature of the human being and to our connection with the divine. Someone who, today, asks the great questions of the human soul's existence, therefore stands, if you like, between two precipices which seem to set its insuperable limits to knowledge, science on the one hand, mysticism on the other. Whatever promises mysticism holds out, however magnificent and beautiful are the writings of many mystics, which they draw forth from the human soul, most such attempts cannot stand up to the scrutiny of inquiries founded on disciplined scientific training. You see, someone accustomed to the scrupulous methods of science and used to evaluating everything, including human phenomena, will soon find that what the mystic draws forth from his inner depths is in fact nothing more than thoughts and feelings he first acquired many years before in the ordinary world, which, aided perhaps by a lively imagination, have since grown in him into images. These thoughts and feelings, having first sunk into the depths of a person's being, have been altered by the human organism, which, to outward investigation, has a secret and significant connection with the soul. Someone with a deep knowledge of the psyche will see that what has been gained by mystic paths, which is thought to be eternal, is nothing other than a store of memories that have been altered and transformed by the human organism itself. And so if we try to engage with a deeper mode of experience, with the great questions of human existence, we must ultimately acknowledge that science does not enable us to get further, for its findings are enclosed in a field in which knowledge is concerned only with outward aspects of the human being and cannot reach intrinsic human nature. This admission is necessary. Serious and honest science does not try to delve further. And, on the other hand, mysticism, in the form it usually takes, cannot reach beyond subjective human experience. In exploring the world, science does not extend from the world to the human being, and mysticism, in delving into inner experience, does not reach out of this experience into the world. If we weigh up these two outlooks in our feeling, we can once again ask this, is it not after all possible to go beyond what mysticism offers us on the one hand and what science offers us on the other? Now, in the lecture I gave at the Urania, a few days ago, I pointed out that anthroposophy, as spiritual research, examines the workings of human memory, 
turns out that we can deepen and extend our memory faculty. I did not embark before on deep philosophical or epistemological issues, nor do I wish to do so today, but will stay with easily accessible matters. I could go into deeper philosophical aspects of these things, but what I have to say today can best be understood if we stay in more everyday territory. What lives in our memory and renders us full human beings because at any moment of our lives we can conjure up things we have experienced in the past has entered the human soul through sense impressions of the outer world. We receive sense impressions and we process them in our thoughts. Hidden from sight, they undergo a transformation within us and then surface again. Either they rise involuntarily again or we make an effort to recall them. If we wish to understand what really lives in memory in the human soul, we can only say this. It is like something that is reflected back, however much time has elapsed, by the mirror of the soul that lies deep and permanent in our human being. The outer world is reflected in our soul in the form of memory, the ability to remember. As I said, I do not have time and scope tonight to study the nature of this soul mirror in detail, but this picture should suffice for now. Our memory does not take us into the very ground of our soul's being. However, if you look in a mirror, you see in the mirror what stands before it. In the same way, in mystic thoughts and images furnished by memory, we have only a mirror image of the outer world. If we want to see what lies behind the mirror, then either we must take the mirror away or must break it into pieces. In a certain sense, we do have to break through this mirror within us, this power of memory, in order to look deeper into our being. And we do break through it. That is, we go beyond the mystic visions this mirror shows us and enter more deeply into our being if we activate our thinking inwardly. The same thinking that we otherwise expend on outer experiments and such like. When we meditate, focusing on a particular content, and thereby continually strengthen our inner powers. In the Urania lecture I described this, and discussed it also in my books, how, through activating thinking in a particular way, we can descend below the memory mirror and look deeper into our being. You might think that this would show us our physical organization, it is certainly true in the ordinary mind we only reach inwardly as far as the memory mirror. And in doing so, physical processes in our organism change and distort the outward picture that we perceive in this mirror. But if we make our thinking ever more active, living with it in as inward a way as we live with our blood and breathing, so that our whole being participates in this inwardly living thinking, then we penetrate deeper into our human nature. And as we do so, what is revealed is not our physical being, but a soul-spiritual nature that can only become apparent through this strengthened and empowered thinking. What is revealed to us is an aspect of us that is entirely soul-spiritual, which remains unconscious to the ordinary mind, 
but whose intrinsic nature shows us that it existed before we embarked on our earthly life at birth, or in fact at conception. That this can be the case can become clear by recognizing how the intrinsic nature of memory gives us not present but past experience. We have the same certainty about the character of our experience and what I described above, which leads us deeper than mystic contemplation. Then we gain a spiritual picture of everything involved in the first phase of human life as the essentially creative principle when a wondrous sculpting or modeling activity is working upon the brain and on the rest of the human organization. But in such contemplation we trace the human soul-spirit being beyond birth and death. We gaze into a world of spirit where we existed as human soul-spirit beings with our intrinsic core before we descended into this earthly world and mantled ourselves in what our forefathers have given us, a physical human body. It is certainly true that we come to this perception not only through the nebulous kind of gift that is nowadays termed clairvoyance. While we can use the word clairvoyance for what I have been describing here, it must be qualified by saying exact clairvoyance. You see, someone who embarks on a path of spiritual research, like a rigorous scientist, activates their thinking in a way that not only draws forth memory pictures, but also things that lie beneath the threshold of memory, which were creatively active within us before the faculty of memory had developed and before we began our earthly existence. This is one aspect addressed by anthroposophic research as it engages with the two principles I have described. It seeks to deepen spiritual apprehension through exact thinking, and in one direction reaches beyond birth and death to a knowledge of the eternal core of the human being. But in the same way that we must recognize, if we seek rigorous knowledge and wish to go further than the mystic often goes, how the mystic's contemplations lead him to beautiful illusions, how we must in a sense take mysticism further to achieve knowledge of our pre-birth nature. So, on the other hand, again, by deepening our rigorous scientific investigations, we must try to take a further step in spiritual perception. And this is done in the following way. Yes, indeed, we come up against limits if we honestly apply scientific methods to the world. We encounter limits precisely when we apply these methods to natural processes. Limits we can formulate in the term, in quotes, material consciousness and such like. But we have a choice here. We can stop at these limits and state that human beings cannot get beyond them, must simply accept this, or we can begin to wrestle with our whole being to overcome them. In doing so, we can consider that we perhaps constrain and confine our innate faculties and capacities within these limits in order to perfect science. It may therefore be, if we continue in our struggles and engage all our human capacities, wrestling with these thoughts as they encounter constraints and limits, that we can get beyond them. I know the objection that could be made here 
people will say that it is indeed a good thing that science understands how to exclude human imponderables from its methodologies, adhering rather to measuring, weighing, computation, and so on, everything valued as research tools. It is good to exclude subjective human aspects, and it would be dangerous to muddy the waters again by including them. But if we do this in the way anthroposophic inquiry seeks to do, first fully adopting the stance of science, fully achieving this objective separation of research methods from human aspects, but then reintroducing a personal quest into this objectivity, then something else emerges. Then we respect the demands of science, but at the same time, introduce the human element into its objectivity. And then the following must be said. If we have imbued ourselves with scientific inquiry and knowledge, as it has developed in recent centuries, and especially since the 19th century, as it were inwardly engaging with the spirit of science, yet at the same time also involving our whole person specifically in the things that science describes, then a human endowment, otherwise not seen at all as a power of cognition, does become a power of cognition, a means of inquiry. This devotion to something that is gained objectively ultimately becomes an objective elaboration of human love. If, with full respect for the scientific mode of thinking, we have surveyed natural phenomena in the world as far as possible from the scientific perspective and then divest ourselves of this mode of thinking, if we can summon a sufficiently heroic approach to inquiry, to immerse ourselves in scientific findings with a kind of devotion we only otherwise invoke in the realm of love, especially human love, then love itself becomes perception and knowledge. And then the love that has undergone this metamorphosis to become a power of inquiry will penetrate beyond what science is able to offer us. It is not the work of a single day but of long spans of time in a human life to delve beyond the limits of science to the realities and beings that lie behind it. But when we do this, the following emerges. At the moment we break through these limits erected by science and look behind them, remarkably something becomes transparent in the human being that has always previously been opaque. In ordinary life we wake up in the morning, spend our days in waking consciousness with the powers of our earthly feeling and soul, and fall asleep again in the evening. But what occurs with the soul-spirit within our physical body is hidden from human awareness. Our confused dreams from the night-time play into our waking life but have no real value for inquiry. And so we can say that all of human life is composed of what we experience when awake and what we pass through in sleep. And we fail to observe on the whole that in looking back we always stitch the morning on to the previous evening, leaving out of consideration what escapes awareness, the periods during which we have been asleep. But now we must ask, 
whether the soul spiritual gifts we receive in sleep might not be just as important as what our waking life gives us. Certainly it is true that in respect of outer life the waking state is paramount and the more civilization came to esteem outward life only, the more it has attended to the state of wakefulness. And yet, as philosophers have acknowledged, what occurs in a good third of our life on earth, which we sleep through, is no less important than is our waking existence. But this only becomes vividly apparent when by wrestling with natural phenomena, through the thoughts I described above, we break through the barriers that limit our apprehension of things. And then the empty experiential space that we otherwise sleep through, which, apart from dreaming, is as a void for us, fills with content that is otherwise veiled in the obscurity of sleep. In the same way that we can look back on the knowledge that we gain in waking life as physical sense beings, in relation to the earth and its phenomena, so now, a soul's spiritual knowledge arises from the condition in which we pass the periods of sleep. The darkness intervening between falling asleep and awakening again this third of our lives becomes transparent. And what we then perceive is our true I, capital, the shape of thinking, feeling, and will. We perceive what continually works in us without our awareness, our being of spirit-soul, and we recognize its content as what separates from the rest of us when we pass through the gate of death, when we lay aside the physical body. As sleep becomes transparent to us, we come to discern the true nature of human immortality. If we look through and beyond mysticism, when we go further than ordinary mysticism, we come to know our pre-birth being. We do so if we respect science, yet also start to wrestle with its limits. We come to perceive the immortal nature we contain within us. These perceptions show us how the human being is constituted and develops, revealing how a pre-birth human spirit enters and penetrates our physical organization, increasingly as it were, submerges itself in this human organism and how the latter gains ever greater sway, how what enters us at birth disappears ever more through the course of physical human existence as we continue to develop so that we increasingly become a physical, corporeal being. But to the same degree that this development proceeds, that our innate spirit and soul submerge themselves in the physical body, something increasingly emerges that, as we observe sleep, appears as our future being. As we move toward the end of a human life, we see at the same time that the declining spiritual being of our pre-birth existence gives way to the growing spirit-soul being of our coming existence after death. At every point in earthly life, we see a balance between what we have brought with us out of the eternal world into earth existence and what we have fashioned so far and will carry with us through the gate of death into a spiritual existence. 
we gain perception of immortality. The path I have been describing, which goes beyond both mysticism and science, to gain real knowledge of human nature, is not one that can be dismissed as, in quotes, clairvoyant. It is a path that proceeds step by step with the same exactitude a mathematician will practice, deriving each step from the one that preceded it. This path I have outlined, and in doing so I refer also to the books I mentioned, is the path of anthroposophy, which leads to perception and knowledge of both the soul's unbornhood and immortality with the same rigor a strict mathematician will use at every step of an equation, and which demonstrates that in our inquiry into human nature we do not need to stop short with science's external, objective view, nor with mysticism's inner, subjective one, but that rather we can combine knowledge of the world with knowledge of human existence. If in this way science on the one hand and mysticism on the other are extended and developed, it will in turn become possible in humanity's future culture of the spirit to fulfill the admonition, Know Yourself, a phrase which so powerfully resounds for us. Knowledge of the kind I have described is, however, different from the knowledge that is bound up with the nervous system, which is largely head knowledge. If you allow me to make a personal remark here, though an entirely objective one, I would say this. When seeking as a spiritual investigator to study this realm, which I characterize as realms we pass through before birth and after death, one is aware that the kind of thinking otherwise serviceable in life is not sufficient. You have to develop a strengthened thinking that draws upon your whole being. This does not make you into a medium, but your whole being must be involved in such thinking. This kind of thinking penetrates into your feelings and sensibility, and in fact requires you to apply your whole content of will to it. At the same time, thinking about spiritual content is of a kind that, unlike other thinking, does not allow you to incorporate it into memory in the ordinary way. Here again I will make a personal remark. You see, if the spiritual investigator gives a lecture such as the one I am giving now, he cannot prepare it in the way ordinarily done for academic lectures. In this case, he would only be calling upon memory. And what arises through deepened perception cannot in fact be drawn from memory, but must be re-experienced anew at every moment. While it can be brought down into the regions where we formulate words about our insights, nevertheless, we have to exert our whole being to do this. It has been my profound experience that I can only embody in words what I succeed in discovering in the world of spirit, and by embodying these things in words, they also embed themselves in memory. If I draw a few lines or write something down, so that not only the head, but all the other organ systems are involved. You have to feel the need to seek help from somewhere or other besides the head, for you cannot manage by grasping things in that way only. They flicker and fluctuate. 
The important thing is that I give expression to a thought in lines and sketches and fix it in that way. I have whole wagon loads of old notebooks filled with these things, which I never look at again. Nor are they intended for that, but enable me, rather, to clothe in words what I have drawn from the Spirit with great exertion, so that I can commend it to memory. Having written these notes or drawn these sketches, you have participated in spiritual production with more than the thoughts of the head alone, with more of your organism, and then it becomes possible to hold fast to what otherwise continually evades you. The rest of the human organism does not at first participate, is more unconscious and asleep than processes of the head. And whenever we incorporate something into our will, we employ the organs that are, in a sense, asleep, even in our waking life. We are only really awake in our thoughts, in our mental pictures, for in the ordinary mind the way in which what we think penetrates into our organism as a will impulse or decision, so as to become a movement of the hands or fingers, say, is submerged in complete darkness. Only the spiritual investigator can observe what occurs between the process in the brain and the movement we perform. And thus spiritual perceptions, which are not ordinary head knowledge, have to be committed to the whole human organization. By acquiring knowledge of the human being from one's whole being, insights into human nature thus arising, which make pre-birth and after-death existence tangible, can be applied in a quite different way to practical life than would be possible without this true knowledge of human nature. Now, those who draw upon anthroposophic research have taken the bold step, brought about by destiny, you might say, of introducing practical forms of education and pedagogy. You see, if you imbue yourself with knowledge of the human being based on the kinds of investigation I have described here, you acquire a finer, spiritualized instinct for how human beings develop through the different ages and phases of life from birth through to death. Then we need only have the courage to study human development in the same way, albeit at a higher level, as we otherwise study any field of science by the strict scientific methods applied to it. And this gives rise, for instance, to the following. We will continually reflect upon how the destiny of the human being's soul and spirit is realized within bodily existence. Rather than speculative methods, we apply observational methods to such questions. If we develop true observation of human nature, then we can discover, and I am speaking in an easily comprehensible way now, how in the child's early years, from birth to second dentition, the most significant human capacities emerge and release themselves from indeterminate depths of a person's being. We can observe the developing dynamic whereby a person, as a being who walks upright, finds balance as they place themselves into the world, how speech, how thinking emerge from the depths of the soul 
and come to bodily expression. And what we see developing in this way culminates in the change of teeth. The singular thing about this is that it is a unique occurrence in human life. What occurs at second dentition is never again repeated. If you like, a sum of forces comes to conclusion in the human organism. Only those unacquainted with the nature of this human organization can believe that second dentition occurs separately from anything else. This is not so. It is rather the outwardly perceptible expression of something that occurs within the whole human organism. A person undergoes a process that will not occur again later in life, for otherwise we would continue to change our teeth at regularly recurring intervals. Someone who properly observes human development is aware of the significant transformation of the human soul and spirit that occurs at this time. But people do not properly attend to this change. If I were to fully describe things, it is important for teachers and educationalists to know in this respect, based on the knowledge of the human being I wish to present, it would far exceed the scope of this lecture. I will outline them only briefly. Take memory, for instance. To a superficial view, we might say that memory appears in a certain way up to second dentition, and then it changes a little. Yet memory before and after second dentition is different in kind. Our scientific outlook today is not able to study the intimate dynamics at work within the human being. To a keener faculty of observation, it becomes clear that the wonderful memory we possess before the change of teeth is nothing other than the action of habits that express themselves from within outward. Up to second dentition, memory arises from the forces and power of habit. We can compare it to any habitual movement and say that at this stage memory involves the drawing of one thought from another in succession. In short, what we call memory undergoes a metamorphosis as the child passes through second dentition at around six or seven. This metamorphosis is one from a more physical bodily mode of experience to a more soul-spiritual one. Starting from such an observation, we can gain further insights that are hugely characteristic of the rest of human development. For instance, if we observe a subtler observational instinct, if we incorporate the findings of spiritual research, we can discover that the child is an imitative being up to the change of teeth. Of course, these are not dogmatic truths. In the first phase of life, the child can be thought of as an entire sense organ. We can compare the child's life in infancy with a single sense organ, with the inward organism of the eye, EYE. In the same way that the eye absorbs the outer world, and by application of the will, through the instrument of the organism, inwardly develops the picture of what is exerted as impression upon it, so likewise children continually endeavor to reflect what is present in their surroundings, to reproduce it through the imitation which emerges from their inner being. The child is entirely sense-organ, 
actively sensing and absorbing. And precisely because of this, children not only imitate and inwardly experience, unconsciously and in very dreamy fashion, outward movements, gestures, words and tones of voice, and the thoughts contained in these, but also, and this is the singular thing, they observe and imitate the moral significance of each gesture made by their father and mother. The moral significance of, say, a person's facial expression engraves itself in the child's physical organization. Children are inwardly organized right into their blood vessels by living in sympathy with what occurs around them. Only by considering what this means will we be able to distinguish between inherited characteristics and what is acquired in the early years from a child's environment through imitation. And then also we can see the wonderful interplay between the environment and the child, and this will shed a very different light on scientific ideas about heredity, which can become a mystical concept to the rigorous investigator. This will also show how each person brings with them a particular nature and disposition as soul-spiritual being, embarking on earth existence at birth, brings with them an etheric body, which is a term unfamiliar in modern thinking. The young child is characteristically a bodily religious being. Young children are indeed bodily surrendered and devoted to the physical outer world and its moral content in the same way as we can be surrendered and devoted to something that appears to us divine. They possess a bodily religious mood. And since this mood is religious only in a bodily way, they naturally do not demonstrate piety or such like, the inward religiosity that may develop later. Yet if we can trace human development, we can see something that is entirely involved in the bodily, physical realm in the early years, enters a person's impulses of feeling and will. And when the time comes for the child to go to school, we must recognize that an inner metamorphosis occurs in the child's inner life. What was before bodily, physical experience, what emerged during bodily, physical development, is to some degree left behind at second dentition, and appears now in a different soul-spiritual form as inward feeling and soul. From what was first contained in forces of growth, in the modeling forces acting as spirit-soul within the body, a portion is released and transforms itself into independent soul and spirit after the change of teeth. And what we term growth, acting in the body, gradually changes into qualities of spirit and soul. If we take note of this, if we are equipped with this insight, then as teachers and educators our whole stance toward the child will be on the right footing. We will know that into this physical sensory bodily being who possesses a mood of religious devotion to the surrounding world is now growing a being of spirit soul that lived in pre-earthly existence. If we put ourselves in the shoes of teachers with this outlook who have the care of children at this stage, we can see that they will be aware of their responsibility 
They will know they are present on behalf of worlds of spirit to guide souls in their care and to fathom and decipher these children's bodily expressions. They will have a sense of dedication to the beings before them, a desire to help children really fully unfold everything they have brought with them from worlds of spirit soul. Teachers will look upon children with reverence for their profession, seeing with each month and each year that passes that everything they have brought with them from the world of spirit soul transforms into physical and bodily reality. They will reflect on the ways in which they can affect the child and will be aware of what was present as physical bodily characteristics before the transformation that occurs with the change of teeth. Then in the second period of child development from second dentition to puberty, this transforms into soul qualities and only at puberty does it metamorphose again into qualities of spirit. Our view of the human being is then one in which what was experienced in earliest infancy now comes to expression in the person's spiritual engagement with the world. The bodily religious quality becomes a spiritual religious one. And now we can discern how bodily qualities become soul spiritual. We no longer speculate about bodily physical characteristics or about spirit and soul, but we can see rather how at different stages in a person's development the spirit soul either manifests directly or how at an earlier stage this eternal spirit soul works within the body. We gain a view of the human being founded on the reciprocal interplay between body and soul, based on observations that can properly underpin an education worthy of the name. The workings of destiny made it possible to apply the insights gained from such observations in practical ways in school education. Thus, for children at an age when it is still possible to exert an effect upon their destiny, the Waldorf School was established in Stuttgart by Emil Molt as an independent elementary school, and the lower middle school classes were later added as well. I was entrusted with directorship of the school and was able to introduce methods drawn from the view and knowledge of the human being I have described. Here, it is a matter initially of leaving to one side what are known as, in quotes, learning objectives. For we derive these instead from the realities of human development itself. I have only briefly outlined these things, but they rely on observing the developing, changing child each day, using one's pedagogical instinct, which arises precisely through working with the child in relationship to the child, and which enables us to discern what we need to do each week, each month as educators, what we need to impart to the child, reading this, as it were, from the child's own nature. For instance, we can discern that when children first start school, they have a natural disinclination for learning to write and read as such. And this is understandable if we consider that these distinctive signs we call letters, by means of which we read and write, are actually quite foreign to us initially, since they have arisen through a long process of cultural development. 
written script originated from pictures and signs that represented what they signified, and to begin with more closely resembled what people directly perceived, bore a more direct connection with what they signified. The child who comes to school for the first time and who is supposed to learn these now abstract signs feels no affinity with them. They seem alien to him. This understanding only awakens with puberty. The child has a quite different mode of understanding around the age of six or seven compared with the teenager at age thirteen, fourteen, or fifteen. The young child, still only just forming emotionally and mentally, is dependent on the pictorial element to which he relates naturally, as to sense perception. If we know this, then we can introduce the right educational principles for this age. But then we have to resort to things which we applied in our educational practice in the school in Stuttgart. We have to get the child to engage in a kind of painting-drawing or drawing-painting. We have to get children to work not only with their head and eyes, but with their whole being. And it is wonderful to see the remarkable pictorial quality achieved by the children as they paint and draw in this way. If we guide this properly, then we can develop letters, writing and reading, from something with which children have a natural affinity. In fact, we introduce reading after writing, since reading involves only the head, whereas writing calls upon the whole of us. This is one example of practical steps by means of which we try to achieve a human-scale education. By observing the intrinsically religious disposition in human beings, we can also find the means to introduce ethical and religious impulses into education, and in this way the following becomes apparent. It is fascinating to observe children around the age of nine, in the first third of the second seven-year phase, and to recognize what they are going through at that time. All this unfolds unconsciously in them. We see that once children have passed the stage of second dentition, they make a transition from imitation to accepting everything upon the teacher's authority, to learning by this means. But do not think, I beg you, that the speaker who wrote a book thirty years ago entitled The Philosophy of Freedom is any kind of authoritarian. And yet if you read that book and discover the meaning of freedom embodied there, you will also be able to see how it accords with a law of human development that from second dentition to puberty the child is a being who imitates everything the teacher does. He orients himself not only by the words a teacher speaks out of an inner lawfulness, wishes to take his lead from the teacher's whole bearing. Once the child has found his way, in to this natural sense of the teacher's authority, we see how he undergoes a kind of crisis around the age of nine. Everything occurs in the realm of feeling and the child is not consciously aware of it. And yet, the child looks to the teacher and seeks something particular. And if we were to put this into words, the child would say roughly, Hitherto the beautiful was beautiful because my teacher considered it to be so. Hitherto the truth was true, because my teacher thought it so. But henceforth the child asks, 
Who justifies this authority before the whole world, and where does this knowledge of what is true and beautiful originate? The child passes through a crisis. He knows nothing consciously of what I have expressed, but it lives in his feeling. And as teachers and educators we must observe this moment and ensure that where necessary we continually say the right thing to the child in response. How we conduct ourselves at this critical moment will determine whether the child, throughout his life, will have a self-confident delight in life or will be as if alienated from it and inwardly constrained. Thus a method of education which encompasses the whole human being is one that obliges us to educate in a way that is beneficial for the whole of a person's life. If we cultivate this overall observation of life, we will see that the way we educate a young child only comes to maturity later on. I'd like to offer an example of this. No doubt you know people who, when they are getting on in years, or perhaps are very old, radiate a sense of peace and tranquility. They may not say very much at all, but their presence is a blessing to those around them. Such people can spread grace and blessing upon the world around them, often simply through the tone of their words, the way in which they speak, which embodies a wonderful sense of moral goodness. If we enlarge our study of human life beyond short phases, instead making efforts to observe the whole of life, we will find that people of this kind, whose presence brings blessing, had the good fortune when they were children to look up with reverence either to other people or to something that they received. This reverence, around the age of nine, develops into something later in life that issues from us as blessing or benevolence. To sum this up in a picture, you could say that hands cannot bless in later life if they have not learned to fold themselves in prayer when young. This is only a pictorial way of saying that true insight into human nature offers the child something that enables a feeling for morality, for goodness to grow and live in him, that enables also antipathy for what is bad to grow and live as the human body itself grows. You can have the sense that if you present the young child with sharply delineated, fixed and defined forms of knowledge, then this is like laying chains upon his organism. We must give the child concepts, impulses that can grow like the organism, that can grow soul spiritually, that bear spiritually within them the inner capacity to become ever richer. And then later the person can look back gladly to these experiences so that his childhood springs anew again in a now elderly human body. These are just a few pictures, some instances, to show how true understanding of human nature, achieved by the means I described at the very beginning of my lecture, can be applied to education and child development. The Stuttgart School offers a demonstration of what I have described here. It shows these things in living practice, although we also wish to remain modest in our appraisal of the outcomes. Now, someone might object that such an understanding of human nature can only be of interest to those who have developed the capacity to perceive the world of spirit. But this is not so. It is true that someone who pursues the path of knowledge described 
for instance, in the book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, will be able to check for themselves the results of spiritual inquiry. And yet this is not necessary in order to judge the fruits of this research, just as it is not necessary to be a painter to judge the beauty of a painting. While it is true that only a spiritual inquirer can describe the world of spirit, anyone who retains their healthy sense of things can certainly recognize the truth or untruth of the findings of spiritual investigation. For this reason, we should not dismiss those who propound and pursue such spiritual research as a misguided sect. Anthroposophy certainly does not seek to be this. Rather, it advances and continues forms of scientific inquiry that have been developing for centuries, up to their culmination in the 19th century, in a trajectory that still continues today. But science can only become a real knowledge of human nature by applying the methods and guidelines I have described. And then it will also form a sound basis for a human-scale education appropriate to human beings. You see, investigation of the outer world alone will not help us live better, since neither science nor mysticism can lead us to full insight into human nature. It is like breathing. There has to be an interplay between in-breath and out-breath, between knowledge of the world and knowledge of the human being. And only such all-round knowledge can form the basis for an education that traces the spirit soul's transformation into the physical body and sustain the cultural transformation that is needed. If you look at life today, you can see that this culture of ours cannot be transformed by outward changes in a way necessary for a civilization now under threat. Social progress will be possible only through what comes to us from the Spirit, only through human deeds, human actions, sustained by the Spirit. Let me sum up. Spirit perception gives us ideas which can fill our whole being and lead to Spirit-filled deeds, Spirit-filled actions, and Spirit-filled social community imbued with the power of love. And in the near future, this is what we so greatly need, what we need above all else. The end of Lecture 8